The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Welcome to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and uh, we are here live today from Factoria, not Burbank, but we're in Factoria. <laughs> and uh, we have um, broadcasting again on Kixie AM and on uh, sister station KKNW, 1150 AM. And we have Eric Krima back from Hawaii to be with us today. Welcome back, Eric. I bet you're just so glad to be here as you look outside now. Aloha. Aloha, as they say. Uh, yeah, I am happy to be back, but it was beautiful, and we'll talk a little bit about it later in the show. Just impressions from a, a guy that was first time ever going there. That's what it'll be, um, and uh, hope you enjoy the conversation. But uh, yeah, thanks for asking, Paul. It was great. But you know what? Every every place has its uh, wonderful things, and coming back to the green, green, alpine-ish Pacific Northwest isn't bad either. You know, I find the same thing, Eric. You know, like I'm down in Palm Springs right now, and there's certainly just talked about the mountains here and the desert, and it's really nice. But boy, I love landing in Seattle, mm -hmm. coming back and seeing all that green that never gets old. Mount Rainier, yeah. when you see it, but it's just uh, phenomenal in the water. It just it's home to me, and it always will be. <laughs> I'll never forget so, that. Way aside, I'll never forget someone who just moved here that that we became friends called me on the first clear day. Super excited. I said, what's going on? Have you seen the mountain? This is amazing. Have you seen the mountain? I said, you mean Mount Rainier? Oh, yeah, it was the first time they saw it. And it is indescribable when you see it for the first time. I can verify that 100%. I won't go into detail now because you just explained what it was like. But I, I had a very, very similar experience the first time I saw it. It was just <laughs> blew me away. Um, yeah, that's great. So we'll get to the Hawaii trip that you had and uh, looking forward to that. Uh, got really a good diversity of topics today. We're going to start out with a Dean Rigas, and he wrote a book called 1000 Facts About Space. And I talked to him about this uh, book he wrote a short time ago. Here's one just to give you as a teaser. And yeah, this is the type of things you just you're trying to wrap your head around this that there is a known star in somewhere in space that is 3.7 billion times bigger than our sun. Whoa. Now think oh. about that. Oh. What? Yeah, how does that? You know, I mean, come on. 3.7 billion times bigger. I only thought it was 3.5 billion, my calculations. <laughs> but uh, I'll go with that. You know, but seriously. <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, and this book is directed to kids. So if your grandparents or your parent or what, this is a fascinating book. And I, I, I'm looking forward to having you hear this interview today. Voices in History on this day in 1980, one of the biggest upsets, if not biggest upset in sports history, occurred in a hockey game that was played 43 years ago today. 
you think you guys have any idea? Yeah, I've got that one. I All saw right, it. You got I remember watching nailed. it. How about you, Eric Ryder? No. I'm as you know, I'm not a sports guy, so <laughs> typically right. these go over my head if it's a sports question. Okay, fair enough. You'll we'll find out later. Timeless Classics. In March of 1989, Neil Young's band played for the first time a song that would eventually become one of their biggest hits. And they played it the first time to a sold-out crowd at Seattle's Paramount Theater. So I thought that would be kind of fun to play today for the Timeless Classic. And then we have Pat Cashman coming up. And um, he and Linda Foster do a wonderful podcast called Peculiar broadcast but he has within that a segment well this segment is separate from it but it's called just saying and today pat tackles cliches and uh it's quite humorous and i think you will enjoy that you know you think about the class uh, cliches we always say like you know bird in the hand and all these right. things that go on and on and so that that's what he does he does a better job than me so i'm just going to move on <laughs> and uh we have voices of experience. Just always like to give to the audience what we do in this show. We talk with people with experience, and that's why it's called Voices of Experience. Public affairs, travel, like Eric's going to talk about today, fitness, education, entertainment, with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. So if you have any comments about what you hear today, we'd love to hear from you. If there's something you agree with, disagree with, or would like to hear more of, the hotline number is 425 425- Six five three one one six six. That's four two five six five three eleven sixty six. It's open twenty four hours a day. So we're going to be back in just a moment with uh, my interview with Dean Rigas. Dean Rigas has been an astronomer for the Cincinnati Observatory since two thousand. From 2010 to 2019, Dean was also co-host of the PBS program called Stargazers. He is the author of several books, including Facts from Space and 100 Things to See in the Night Sky. But today, we're going to be talking about his latest National Geographic book, 1,000 Facts About Space. When did you become fascinated with space? At what point was it in your life, and is there something that triggered it? Well, I'd love to say it was when I was a kid and I read a National Geographic book, but it wasn't. It was later in my life, actually, after college. started to be a high school history teacher, then took a year off and worked as a naturalist for the Cincinnati Parks. And then one of the parks had a planetarium. And for some reason, they put me in charge of it without knowing anything. I didn't know where the North Star was. And uh, so I just, uh, something happened. I just started doing planetarium shows, and I just thought this was the coolest subject ever. And I just dove in and learned all that I could. Uh, And that was going on 25 years ago where I uh, became an astronomer by accident. It was just an amazing thing. And it's just one of those things where you find something, you find your calling in life, you find something that really motivates you, and space did it for me. It's interesting because you don't hear that often. Usually there's something that triggers something like this when you're a younger kid. But uh, not to diminish it at all, it's fascinating, too, that all of a sudden you found your calling, as you said. So that's pretty nice. Oh, yeah. No, my childhood dreams were to play professional football, which uh, was not going to work given my small stature. <laughs> so this was uh, uh, my childhood dreams were very fanciful. But now, uh, you know, 
being an astronomer is pretty pretty amazing job as well. So I get to see all these amazing things in space and uh, and learn all the stuff that's going on in this very cutting edge field. Well, mine was baseball, so we both having a, that in common that it didn't kind of work out that way. When we look at space, I mean, your book is a thousand facts about space. What are the ones that just would kind of blow our mind? I saw a few, but I'd like you to take the lead on that. Yeah, the uh, the, the book is kind of broken down by sections, so there's different chapters about different things. So there's you know a chapter on each of the planets. There's one on stars and galaxies and that kind of stuff. But I the, the, we kind of kick off the book right away with kind of like the biggest, baddest, most amazing space facts there are. And I think the ones that get me, you know, there's you know, the one about the black hole that was found in this galaxy called M87. That's the biggest black hole around. Uh, there's stuff about our own galaxy that we have. The Milky Way has about 300 billion stars in it. And the supernova it was one of the biggest supernovas ever. It was in 1006 that people could see this bright light in the daytime. So it was like two suns were in the sky, the sun and our, the sun we're used to, and a supernova explosion. Spend a moment on the black hole. That has been a relatively uh, recent discovery when you look at history, that that even existed. And uh, am I right there? And also, what exactly is the black hole? theoretical object that you know we couldn't see them directly because they're the same color as space and they don't emit any light they only absorb light and or swallow it up as gravity uh, swallow is so intense that not even light can escape it but we never had a picture of one until 2019 and to get a actual picture of a black hole took this amazing effort of you combine the 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 light gathering ability of multiple telescopes around the globe and you have them all working together and that's what allowed us to get this this first picture that you know this little uh, black spot with this red gaseous stuff around it and so a black hole is a place where yeah the gravity uh is so intense anything that falls in gets swallowed up disappears uh, is not visible anymore uh, because not even light can escape it. So what is happening inside of a black hole is anybody's guess. So we don't even have an idea as to what really it's about, its function is or something. We just know what exists, and we don't really know the long-term implications of this? Yeah, there, there's a lot of unknowns. And uh, so, you know, they're first detected because they could, see these x-rays that were coming around from these these regions and so uh, some of the stuff that doesn't all the way fall in can be kind of accelerated to these tremendous speeds and be shot out in these jets um but you know some black holes come from stars that collapse some mega gigantic stars that collapse the galaxies in the center of our or the uh, black holes in the center of our galaxy and m87 we don't really have a good theory as to where they came from. I mean, for example, could something like the sun fall into a black hole eventually? Things can fall into black holes if you get close enough. They don't have a very far reach, so you have to be really close to one to fall in. And the galaxy in the uh, the uh, black hole in the center of our galaxy is about twenty-seven thousand light years away, so it's not any danger to us. There's no black holes in our neighborhood. And our sun is not going to be big enough to form into a black hole. Uh, so that's one of the things you don't have to worry about is death by black hole. Okay, so I can go back to worry about COVID tonight rather than a black hole. There we go. Good to know. There we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lasers. Just wanted to talk about that for a moment. And it's 
why I'm going in this direction is that I read recently that there's technology out there that would vaporize asteroids headed towards Earth. Now, if I'm correct there, to me, that is such breaking news of incredible consequences. But we haven't really heard as much about that, that we may have the ability to do that if a um, let's say an asteroid was heading to Earth to either alter the path or just blow it up entirely. Is that somewhat correct? Well, it is kind of untested uh, theoretical technology. So, yeah, we could shine you know, lasers at things to affect them. Uh, how those would work in practice, I would say we're, yeah, we're not at any point where we could say, yeah, that's a great way to save the Earth. Brute force to move an object is probably the least efficient way to do it. And I know, uh, like many people maybe uh, can harken back to that movie Armageddon, where we sent up Bruce Willis to blow up the asteroid and save the Earth. You know, blowing up an asteroid is not the best solution, that is for sure, uh, because all those parts that you blow up will then still fall and hit the Earth and scatter in different places. So vaporization is, uh, you know, in theory, great, but can lasers vaporize a thing that, you know, the size of a, 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 of a city? Unlikely. Um, so the best way is the way it's very boring. You can't make a movie out of it is you send up a giant spacecraft and park it next to the asteroid and let gravity slowly tug it out of its way. Do you believe yourself that there's life somewhere in space? That is definitely a question that, that gets sparked from reading this book is the, the vastness of the universe, the size of things, the scale of things, the sheer number of things out there. Um, and I, I'm going to answer in a roundabout way because I don't, no, and I, I go back and forth as to being optimistic versus pessimistic about it. Um, but you know, if we just take the, the sheer numbers, you know, there's 300 billion stars in our galaxy. Uh, in the universe, it's estimated there's about 2 trillion galaxies. That's a lot of stars. And very recent uh, discoveries are showing that stars, there's more planets around stars than we ever would have thought. So you got more planets, you got more stars. Statistically, you got to think there's got to be another place with, with life on it. But then you also look at the Earth, which has gone through some very weird and strange things to bring us to where we are now. So are we one in a million, one in a trillion? Uh, we still don't know. I, I think there's some people believe on both sides that there's got to be life out there. Um, I'm hopeful. I just think that you know, the, the numbers are going to in our favor that we're going to find something somewhere. You do. At some point, we will uh, make some connection. Okay. I, I I don't go out on limbs very much, but my prediction is that uh, we will find alien life this century. And I love making that prediction because I'm not going to live to see the end of it. I like those too. Yeah, those are good. <laughs> I get it. Nobody will be like, oh, yeah, he was wrong about that one. And I'd be like, oh, right. long dead. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good point. I like that. But you never know what the pace of technology, the pace of our discoveries, I mean, the, the finding of planets around other stars called exoplanets, that field has just exploded. And, and, and so many new exoplanets have been discovered that we never would have figured that. So with astronomy, there's lots and lots of surprises. And that's for me, is a lot of fun uh, navigating through all this. And it sounds like a lot of this, again, is very recent discoveries. Definitely. So if you maybe got a National Geographic uh, space book when you were a kid, 
this you need a new one because these uh, thousand facts uh, i don't know how many of them would be new i would say you know within the next you know within the past 10 years that a lot of these facts come from very very recent discoveries and our pace of discovery is, is really accelerating now let's shift to the moon for a moment while i was alive i remember very well the first uh, moonwalk in 1969 but uh, we're, humans are going back to the moon in 2024. Is that correct? That is super optimistic. I, uh, 2024 was the figure, but I think we're pretty delayed. Um, and so I would say a more realistic... <laughs> again, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a hedger of my bets. And, and, you know, when you deal with space travel, there's a lot of unknowns. So I would say we'll be back at the moon by, you know, you know this decade going to the moon, what would we want to accomplish by going back? Why do we want to go back there? We've been there, done that. Yeah, that's a valid question because, you know, exactly what, what's to be gained from this. Uh, I think there is this, the, 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 the eyes are on the prize of Mars and going to there and uh, sending people there to explore. And I think that's, that's the, the ultimate goal is some, going somewhere new. The tricky part is is getting to Mars is incredibly difficult because it takes you seven months to fly there versus a trip to the moon is only three days. So Neil Armstrong got there in three days. He's back home after eight days. Um, going to Mars is a, about a 26-month round trip. And wow. that's tremendously difficult things. So the way I look at these moon missions is this is the practice. This is, you know, we're, we're a little bit out of practice from the, the old moon program. Um, and so we need to test out these systems in a place that's a little closer to home, that if something goes wrong, we can do something about it. My thanks to Dean Regas for being with us today. His book, again, is called 1,000 Facts About Space. All you need to do is Google 1,000 Facts About Space, and you can find a way to get your copy of the book. And Dean also co-hosts a podcast called Looking Up. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Now Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. So we're back to Voices of Experience. Uh, great uh, talking to uh, about space and all that in the sky. It just kind of made me... Just kind of blew my mind. So anyhow, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do and or as much as I did. So anyhow, we're now in the phase of the show where we bring on Pat Cashman. And I think I've mentioned he uh, does a weekly show called Peculiar Podcast, but he also does something called Just Saying. And that's what this segment is. Let's just play it, Eric, and we'll comment on it afterwards. You know what? I think it's time to declare war. 
In fact, it's pastime. The war I'm talking about doesn't require guns or tanks or bombs, but it does need troops, people like you, because it's time to declare war on cliches. You know what I mean? That was a cliche right there. You know what I mean? Ugh. A cliche is any phrase or expression that is spoken so often, every day, every moment, that it becomes utterly annoying because it is used so often. Here's a good one. You know. They're Bronco fans for life, and, you know, I, I think that they uh, feel like I portrayed them. And, you know, uh, you know I'm, sorry for, I'm sorry for that, you know, and I'm sorry that they feel that way. But, um, you know, maybe later on in life they'll understand, and, um, and I think that the Broncos, uh, I think they, uh, they understand why we had to go different ways, and so do I. And, uh, you know, I'm just... If we already know, why are we interviewing you, you know? Here to make sense of all of this, perhaps, joining me now on the phone is a renowned expert on everyday language, Professor Marvin Flambeau. Where are we speaking to you from, sir? At my office here at Central Oregon Community College, which is cute as a button. Yeah. Uh, how are you today, by the way? I'm alive and kicking, feeling fresh as a daisy, giddy as a colt, fit as a fiddle. Great. Uh, so what do you think about the pervasive use of cliches? I think we should avoid them like the plague. With all due respect, at the end of the day. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. It's easy to fall into the trap of using cliches. I mean, they're a dime a dozen. You should drop them like a hot potato. It's not rocket science, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, you know? Uh, but sir, respectfully, aren't you using a whole bunch of cliches right now in this conversation? Oh, Cashman, it sounds like you've got an axe to grind. To be honest, with all due respect, taking it one day at a time, the fact of the matter is, you're way off base. You're a loose cannon. This feels like a witch hunt. Okay, well, uh, I just think that... Basically, I'm bending over backwards to give 110% to this interview. I'm just taking it one day at a time. Let's face it, what goes around comes around. You're just adding insult to injury. You know what I mean? Uh, you know what, Professor? We are out of time. Oh, well, you just let the cat out of the bag there. Giving me the bum's rush, huh? I guess better safe than sorry. No use crying over spilled milk. It goes without saying. If you've seen one, you've seen them my, all. Uh, my guest has been Professor... Associate Professor... Marvin Flambeau. Oh, aren't you just smart as a whip? Haste makes waste, Cashman. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. I'm Pat Cashman. You're as dead as a doornail. Age before beauty, Cashman. Cashman, that ship is sailed. You know, money doesn't grow on trees. The list goes on until the cows come home. But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Cashman, hello? Are you still there? All's well that ends well. You know? There you have it. I, was, I can't even comment on that afterwards. I was trying to come it up. It took him a long time to put together. Oh, he yeah. He works hard. I was trying to come up with a... a a cliche comeback, but I can't think of one because he he was using them all. That was great. Yeah. That's um, funny. The one I have, and I, I could have done it before I introduced him. I could have said, you know, I do that a lot. I find myself, you know, yeah. Strange, so why we use that as a bridge, you know? <laughs> yeah. And if you key into it, it really starts to bug you. You know, if you're listening to someone, that what what was like that was that was really big when my daughter was growing up like yet yeah, it was a, became a period to every sentence and you know what I'm saying yeah and you know what I'm saying <laughs> you know what I'm saying <laughs> yeah there's a bunch of them yeah but uh, 
Anyhow, Pat Cashman nails it. it again. So uh, thank you so much to Pat for allowing us to use his materials. So we're going to be right back, and we're going to take a journey to Hawaii with uh, Eric Crema in just a moment. So, Eric, the floor is yours. Well, thanks, Paul. Yeah, I I had the pleasure of going to Hawaii, specifically to Maui and to Oahu, over the course of 10 days. I I was born and raised in the Seattle area and living relatively close, if you will, to these beautiful tropical isles. I'd never been there. So it was my first time there. Now, I've spent some time in the Caribbean and Mexico and other tropical locales, but this was the first time that I got to experience a place like Maui and Oahu. So... Uh, let's just begin at the beginning. Loved flying Hawaiian Airlines, free little free commercial there. They did a wonderful job. They made you feel like flying back in the seventies and eighties, where you know you got a free meal and free drinks, and they uh, this was just in the main cabin. So my hats off to them. I wanted to say that first and foremost. Your um, hats off to them. Yeah, the cliche. Oh, there's the cliche right there. Yeah, just I thought I'd get that. Bing, I'm that's not going to do that to you the whole way, or we'd be. <laughs> no, we're going <laughs> to go ahead. I hear Your this Hawaii off. is something of a island paradise. It is an island paradise. <laughs> By the way, it is. Sorry, Sorry, we're back on the cliche. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Five and a half hours away from Seattle. Direct flight, of course. There's nowhere to stop in between, and uh, it was uh, it was an easy place to get to. So that's number one. That was a pleasant surprise. I really thought it was going to be a lot more humid there. At least this time of year, it was not comparatively humid to, say, the south or Florida, you know, at different times of the year. So I don't know. Maybe you know, Paul, does it get a little more humid there at different times? Maybe the summer? I don't know. Yes, it does. But they have the breezes, and you probably experienced this, that come up about 3 o'clock every day, and it really kind of neutralizes the humidity. Then it kind of returns at night. But, yes, it can get humid there. Okay, okay. Uh, and you're right about the breezes. It seemed like, like you say, right around 3 o'clock, boom, they would hit. Um, it was The weather was great. Um, we had just missed a huge uh, rainstorm uh, over a period of about a week, I believe, prior to getting there. So they had a lot of landslides and things like that. Uh, and they were still cleaning up from the debris. But it was it's probably a hit or miss this time of year in terms of weather. You're coming off the winter, going into spring. But you know, I rented a car. The airport's easy to get around. Rented a car and then headed off to where we were staying. And I realized on alongside the road, Paul, and I don't know if this was your experience in Maui, there is very little litter and hardly at all any graffiti along the roads. It was amazing. I mean, it uh, it was super clean. Uh, so I found that interesting. I don't. I the the only thing I can go by is I, I spoke to someone in a cab. And they said, well, we're sort of taught at an early age here to respect the environment and not to throw things out the window of your car, you know, and to take care of the water. Some of it is going all the way back to the most indigenous people there, and and others just people that have grown up there are being taught that. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, Maybe we could use those lessons here a little bit, you know. Um, the locals I found were extremely nice, uh, whether they're working at a restaurant or, you know, at some other venue or just walking around talking, talking to people on the street. Uh, they, they just were very pleasant and they had this cadence about them, which was relaxed, which I guess I should have expected because with the warmth and just sort of a feeling that, you know, you're on an Island where you drive top speed is like 60 miles an hour. Um, it was interesting that that attitude 
transferred into the drivers of the cars too. Uh, because I did a lot of driving in this rental car and not a single horn honk, not a single, I didn't see over a course of an entire week, someone driving aggressively, which I, I can't go a day here without seeing that. I don't know, you know, and I'm sure the same's down there. Paul. Agree with that. Uh, that's very interesting. In addition to the weather and just the beauty of the place, it makes me want to move there just from what you just <laughs> described. Yeah. Well, break out the visa, break out, you know, tap your 401k because it's going to cost you some bucks. Yeah. That's uh, everything sure. there is about 30% more expensive. Than even Seattle? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. I bought a dozen eggs for $14. Oh, um, oh. yeah, we, we basically had a, we had a nice little place we're staying where we fix breakfast every day just to sort of save money. And, um, for the, for the four of us for four, only four breakfasts cost about $275 at, at Safeway there. So, um, it's, it is expensive for food. There are things you can do depending on your lifestyle and what you want to do to save money. So research, research those things. And and uh, do some comparison shopping, and know that everything from fuel to gas to blah 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 is going to be about thirty percent more than here, for the reason that everything has to be shipped in. Now, there's a caveat there. They have a ton of um, uh, farmers markets and roadside stands that have great fruit and vegetables because I believe they must have wonderful soil there, so they're able to grow. And when you think about it, with that weather, Paul, with the f- the sunshine with the rain that comes through um, every other day or every day sometimes, just a little bit of rain, it, it seems like they probably grow year-round um, there. Um, Maui itself just seems to me like a great starting point for your adventures in Hawaii. It has everything. It's got the restaurants, the beaches. We did things like zip lining. We did the road to Hana. The road to Hana, folks, is about, I don't know, 30 miles long. And there's, uh, I think it was 620 turns on that road, Paul. So it took us about four hours to get up there because we did some stopping at all the waterfalls and things like that. But coming back without stopping, it was still a two-hour ride for 30 miles because it's so windy and twisty. But why people do it is, A, you know, you get to say, hey, I survived the road to Hana. But secondly, to say, you got to see some of the most beautiful. I mean, it's like postcard. You go around a corner and look back, and it's just sheer cliffs down to the blue, blue water, and you see waterfalls and streams and lush, lush vegetation. Bring a camera because uh, you're going to burn through some uh, pictures for sure. One kind Eric, of zip lining. Could you uh, give me a little bit on that? Yeah. So we did a zip line tour uh, kind of on the road to Hana. So we're in the jungle, and there were eight different zip lines. The longest was. Um, let's see, one, two, about two football fields long. Uh, and you just go zipping through the canopy in its various speeds and, and things like that. They put on the harness and all that. And, uh, it's just a fun, it's like being a kid again. You know, you, you're, you're totally safe and you just zip on through. In this case, it was the jungle canopy and it's, you know, you're obviously going from a high point to a low point and they take pictures and things like that. But that became an all day affair because, the people that were working with us were also teaching us about the plant life and the area and how it formed. So it was a little educational, too. So it was fun, really fun. I recommend it. Um, one thing that was interesting was the tourists that were clearly there seemed like from the West Coast didn't seem in the best of moods. And we talked to a lot of people purposely coming in and out of elevators, holding elevator doors, 
talking to them in restaurants and things like that, and they kind of seemed like they were in a bad mood. I don't know if the, that was your experience, Paul. But I was thinking, not at all. You mean, and particularly people visiting from the yeah, West Coast? Yeah, yeah. And because I'd asked them, you know, finally get out of them. Now, it could have been the way I was approaching them, too. I mean, you know, it just could have been bum luck on, on my part. But um, it seems like if I was in that paradise, I'd just be happy all the time with <laughs> a big old smile. Uh, but from Maui, <clears throat> we then went off to Oahu. And for those of you who know, uh, a bit about Hawaii. Oahu is where... Eric, I, I want to get to Oahu in a second. Yes. Leaving Maui. Yes. Uh, when I was there, just I'm going to do this briefly, and that is I stayed at the Four Seasons Hotel, and it was a wonderful spot. Very lucky to be there. It wasn't as expensive as it is now, but certainly it's going to be much more expensive as that show, White Lotus, that was filmed oh. as a backdrop the first season in uh, Maui was there. And I, it was interesting to see the hotel and all the restaurants and the beach and all that to see it come back. But uh, anyhow, I just wanted to throw that in. That's funny you say that. I love that show. It was a great show, extremely well acted and written. And we did drive by that swanky hotel you stayed at. It was nice. <laughs> we couldn't get all too right. close. Oahu, onto Oahu. Onto Oahu. Now, Oahu has, of course, Honolulu, which is their major city. Their, uh, the metro and outlying areas approaches a million people. So it'll, it's going to feel a little bit more like being in Seattle. Um, Waikiki beach was within walking distance of our hotel, but we were not on the beach. Uh, those hotels probably double the price on rooms. If you just go a few blocks back, seems like it cut it in half and we felt safe. We were walking that city all different times of night, um, going to various eateries and places of adult beverages and things like that and walking the beach. So, uh, definitely it's kind of a must do to say you've walking on Waikiki beach and seen Diamond Head and a point, which is the mountain up above. But also there is Pearl Harbor. So I wanted to make sure to go to Pearl Harbor and see the Arizona uh, Memorial. So this this whole park system is amazing. They have several museums. It's not just the Arizona Memorial, which is profound in and of itself. But learn more at PearlHarborHistoricSites.org. PearlHarborHistoricSites.org. Org, and definitely go there before you go there, meaning go to the website, because you're going to um, be able to get certain tickets that not everybody can get. And you're going to see some rules and regs that once you get there would be kind of a hassle like, A, you can't have, you know, a bag or a purse or you know, backpack. You have to store all that, which they have there. But if you're packing a bunch of stuff in thinking you're going to be able to bring it in, you can't. So just know that. Um, but there is the USS Arizona Memorial. Um, the Battleship Missouri Memorial and the Pacific Fleet Submarine Museum and the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum. I just don't have enough time to go into all of them. So I wanted to talk about the person that designed or came up with the design for the Arizona Memorial, that famous white structure. So he was born and raised in Vienna. His name was Alfred, Alfred Priest. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Priest uh, spent his early architectural career in Vienna. And although he had a Jewish background, he converted to Catholicism in 36. Newlywed, he and his wife fled Australia in 39 in the face of German annexation of his homeland, and they immigrated to the U.S. But when they got here, like the Japanese, he was interned. So he was interned for three months on Sand Island detainment camp in Hawaii after December 7th, 1941, because of uh, coming from a, a nearby German country, I guess it would be. Um, so that was kind of interesting, but he didn't, he didn't have a bitterness about it. He really wanted to be in America. 
And uh, he came up with the design back in, I believe it was 1962. Yeah, 1962 is actually when it was dedicated by John F. Kennedy. And um, this landmark, uh, uh, landmark memorial was originally criticized for looking sort of like a squashed carton of milk because of the sagging center. But priests said, wherein the structure sags in the center, but stands strong and vigorous at its ends expresses the initial defeat, but the ultimate victory. The overall effect is one of serenity. Overtones of sadness have been omitted to permit the individual who comes to contemplate his own personal responses. And all I'll say, Paul, in, in closing, is if you get a chance to go there, go there. Um, it is profound. And and I got choked up. I, I have to be honest with you. When you see the names of almost 1,200 servicemen who, who basically died in an instant, as that ship exploded and now this memorial is over, you think about their lost opportunities and the, just the sacrifice, the instant sacrifice at the beginning of what was such a horrible war. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty moving. I'll just say that. Well, I can see you uh, really feel that way, and you made me really stand up or kind of think about that. I did not have any idea. I've been on, you know, the... Uh, Missouri and and did go through that whole thing, but I didn't know about the history there. That was really fascinating in terms of, excuse me, the Arizona, that, yeah. you know, the memorial there, mm-hmm. did that. I kind of got off track there, but yeah. Thank and, a you lot for that, of, and a lot of people donated money to that. It wasn't just, you know, oh, here's some federal money. No, including Elvis. I think Elvis alone was responsible for, for about 10% of the dollars being raised to have that structure built. If I heard that right, um, is that at some other point, the project was in trouble and he's the one who came in and kind of got it over the top and his money, his contribution got the Arizona Memorial completed. Yeah. I think I have that right. I think you're right. Interesting stuff there. Worth the visit. Very good, Eric. Very good. I Thank think you. you have a new calling. <laughs> Travel. Seriously, be, you know, then you get a place in Hawaii and come and do this and I can come visit you there and we can do interviews on the beach. I love okay. the way All you right. think, Paul. Let's get back to reality. But <laughs> thank you. How long were you there, Eric? 10 days? Uh, seven days on Maui, three days on Oahu. Okay. That's what I thought. All right. So we'll be back in just a moment with Voices in History. We'll kind of continue this trend for a few more minutes. You just received some startling news. You're going to need brain surgery. But the doctor also says your prospects for total recovery are excellent. The doctor is very confident with his prognosis. He's performed hundreds of similar surgeries during his career. Who would you choose, this doctor or another doctor who's never performed this type of surgery? If the doctor who's performed similar surgeries is your choice, then experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. You're listening to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with Eric Crema and Eric Ryder. 
in the studio. We're bringing this show live today and uh, enjoying doing so. And we're hitting the final stages of the show today and wanted to talk about Voices in History segment for uh, February. And uh, let's start with February 20th, 1939. Six and a half months before Hitler invaded Poland, New York City's Madison Square Garden hosted a rally to celebrate the rise of Nazism. Hmm. More than 20,000 attendees raised the Nazi salutes. Banners at the rally had messages like, stop Jewish domination of Christian Americans and wake up America, smash Jewish communism. Fritz Kuhn, the national leader, gave the closing speech and referred to President Roosevelt as President Rosenfield. And he also talked about the Manhattan District Attorney, Thomas E. Dewey at the time, as Thomas Dewey. You're shaking your head. I shake my head with that. And what came to mind is that who do we know who kind of did the same thing? Like history repeats itself. (laughs) I'm talking about Trump, these little name calling. I wonder if he read their book or something and got their playbook a long time ago. Enough of that. But anyhow, I really didn't know about this, that it occurred at the Madison Square Garden in 1939 until a couple of years ago. And I saw something, I saw a picture of it, and I go, I didn't know that happened. Did you guys have any knowledge of that? I knew that there was definitely Nazi sentimentism in the United States prior to the war. Um, yes. And I, I think but this rally with yeah, 20,000 people, didn't I know had about no idea. Yeah, there's actually a, a short film uh, about it that I watched. Uh, pretty interesting. Okay. Do you know the name of it, Eric? Uh, I believe it's called a night at the maybe go to the google yeah, yeah we can do while that. you go to the google I, I, what out I, today get that when i I'd heard, like to see that. heard you said say this paul what i was thinking about is and then how many years later are we kind of facing somewhat of a similar situation where our own president is in poland at a time when they're being at least verbally threatened by russia you know and the war is going on in ukraine it, it's just a kind of head shaker that we just don't learn anything from history sometimes yeah, it's kind of revolves. And when I do this, I, I see that kind of all the time. And that's what really struck me about um, this date in history on February 20th. Yeah, the on movie February I was 20th, talking about, by the way, is called The Night at the Garden. The Night at the Garden. Thank you. Yeah. Going to watch that. On February 21st, 1972, President Nixon arrives in China for talks. He took a dramatic first step, normalizing relations with the Communist People's Republic of China, and um, I remember that happening. I remember at the time, I mean, Nixon was always somebody who was very anti-communist and people thought he crossed the line too much. And then uh, he did this dramatic trip to China hmm. and um, it did change the world for sure. On February 22nd, 1980, the U.S. hockey team beat the Soviet Union, which became known as the Miracle on Ice. On that day, a U.S. hockey team made up of college players defeated the four-time defending gold medal-winning Soviet team at the 23rd Olympic Winter Games in Lake Placid, New York. Remember it well. I remember the big zenith I watched it on, too. (laughs) I didn't watch it. I hate to admit it. I'd love to—I heard about it later, and I— just amazing how many people did. And I don't know what I was doing, but I missed out on that one. That was huge. And I would have to think that maybe that was the biggest upset in history. I don't know, but it's debatable. Yeah, it is definitely debatable. And and there was also another, there was a movie about it too that was very good. I think Kurt Russell played the coach. 
in it. Uh, I did see that. Yes. Yeah, it was great, great, great show. On February 23rd, 1945, the Marines raised the U.S. flag on Iwo Jima's highest peak. Speaking about the Japanese in the war, and Marine photographer Louis Lowry recorded that event. On February 24th, 1868, President Andrew Johnson is impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives, but survives because the Senate did not vote for conviction and it did so by just one vote. So we would have been the first one removed from office. So this, again, is courtesy of This Day in History from the History Channel. If you love what we're talking about, you'll have a great time visiting that channel and, and perusing through all of the historical footnotes that they have. Now, more locally, on February 21st, 1989, Neil Young and his band brought down the house at Seattle Paramount's Seattle's Paramount Theater when he gave the first public performance of a song called Rocking in the Free World. On February 19, 1909, Local 174 of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters was chartered in Seattle, and Dave Beck became the uh, local individual to run the organization locally, but then he became the national president of the Teamsters Union in 1952, but in the 1950s, he was accused of breaking a lot of federal laws, and he became a resident of McNeil Island Prison in 1962. Wow. On that. February 22nd, 1932, the George Washington Memorial Bridge was dedicated. 15,000 people attended the opening of Seattle's first highway span. President Herbert Hoover turned a telegraph key from Washington, D.C., which unfurled the flags on the bridge. Now, I had to look up the George Washington Memorial Bridge. I hadn't heard of it. Well, guess what? It's the Aurora Bridge. Oh, but we don't talk Aurora about Bridge. the George Washington Memorial Bridge anymore. Now I'm, I've got to research this. I want to find out why. I mean, huh. I had no idea. I had to look that up. So anyhow, that's what it is. The Aurora Bridge was open on February 22nd, 1932. And when you think about it, that is such an iconic span in this region. You, you see it all the time. You, I've driven over a million times, but when you step back and look at it, juxtaposed to the, you know, the, the, uh, the canal there and, you know, Lake Union, it, it's, it's a pretty bridge. It's, it's, it's a nice design. Yeah. You just kind of take it for granted, but mm -hmm. I, I agree with that. I just want to do a brief voices of history in history, excuse me, on my own uh, uh, local level that I was involved in and this came to mind with President Carter, and um, he's in his last days of his life, let's face it, and um, amazing man, 98 years old. In 1980, I was a delegate to the Democratic National Convention, and I went there as a Senator Ted Kennedy delegate, and President Carter was had just had been just finishing his first term and running for a second term. We all know what happened. Carter did get the nomination, and... Um, then went on to lose pretty badly to Ronald Reagan. And really, the trajectory of the country changed dramatically at that point. Whether it was good or bad, your opinion there, it just changed dramatically. The one thing I wanted to mention is that on the night before the election, Jimmy Carter came to Seattle. And we were at uh, Boeing Field, and I got a call to come and you know be part of the rally for him and I did. I went there as a Kennedy delegate, I wore my button, but he came off the plane. I got to meet him, you know, and all that wow. stuff. 
But what I got to is at the end, I stayed in the hangar to watch Air Force One take off. And it sat on the tarmac for about 45 minutes. And I was going, God, why isn't it not leaving? And But I waited it out and it took off and it was glorious, just like I thought it would be. And then um, about a week later, after we lost, he lost badly, uh, I was reading in Newsweek. And it came at the very end that his last stop in the campaign trail was in Seattle. And he gave a speech and then he got on the plane and they said it sat there for 30, 45 minutes. And I'm going, oh, okay, why? Well, I guess he had just heard that he was going to get trounced. He didn't know which way the election was going to break, but he got on the plane and they said, sit down, the election's over, Ronald Reagan's going to win big. Now, I don't know why the plane sat there for so long because of that. They could have taken off, but they didn't, the communications Mm -hmm. ground. So I don't know what that means, but it was kind of something that came to mind. And I think uh, President Carter is in many ways uh, one of the most underrated presidents we've ever had. I'll leave it at that. That's interesting. You just Picked a, peaked a, a memory in my own brain because my parents brought me down to the airfield. Now, we couldn't go anywhere near him like you did. We were beyond the fence, but we watched the plane land. And they I remember that distinctly, it being sort of a cold night and having my hands, you know, against the chain link fence as a little kid and seeing that beautiful plane come in, not really knowing, you know, the gravity of the presidency and the fact that it was, you know, election night and things like that. But it was just cool. It's just a memory I just totally forgot until you said your your memory, Paul. Yeah. So wishing them the best in the family. They're an amazing people. And um, again, what a slice of history there. So we are kind of coming down to the final moments here. And um, anything else? I think we'll just kind of start closing it out here, Eric. And um, and both the Eric writer and to you, Eric Crema. Thanks to Benny again for doing such a wonderful job uh, pulling this all together and um, enjoyed hearing your trip about Hawaii. It was fabulous. <laughs> all right. Great. Have Any comments about what you heard today? You can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. You can, uh, whatever we talked about today, you have something to add. Like when Eric was talking about uh, his trip to Hawaii and his you know, visit it to the memorial. That was fabulous. Any experiences people have had out there, we'd love to hear from you. That's 425-653-1166. Now, as you know, if you're listening to the show now, Voices of Experience airs on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. And it is simulcast with Hubbard's sister station, KKNW, 1150 a.m. And this is, again, rebroadcast on Kixie only on Sundays at 11 a.m. Next week, Seattle University President Eduardo Penavir, Penavir, and um, he talks about free speech on the campuses today. And I think uh, did this interview before, and it's really interesting how free speech is not what it used to be on campuses under siege. And he really dives into it and explains what's going on in that area now and gives us hope that that will continue. Catalytic converters, we've seen a lot of them stolen, right? You may mm-hmm. be a victim of it. And uh, we have, I have a friend, Neil Peterson, Meandering Musings, talks about how you can really avoid having that happen to you. And the, just the stunning statistics that uh, accompany a lot of catalytic converters. That Del Ferguson, she was the uh, first woman columnist in Washington State and uh, interviewed her 
um, about 25 years ago. And uh, she passed away in the 1990s, but again, just incredible woman. And then uh, finally, we end next week with great places to visit this spring and summer in Washington State. So that's all coming to you on Voices of Experience next week there. Um, we have a few minutes to go and uh, let's get into the uh, the real song of the week and what we're trying to uh, do here every week and the one hit wonder we usually do quite a bit. And now today we're doing the timeless classics. And I talked about it earlier and this is from uh, Rolling Stone magazine. They ranked this song in the top 500 greatest hits of all time. And the individual who wrote this song while on tour with his band in February of 1989. He had just learned that a concert tour of the Soviet Union was not going to happen. And the band member said, well, I guess we'll have to keep on rocking in the free world. That phrase stuck with uh, Neil Young. He turned it into a hit song. Oh, and by the way, he sang this song for the first time, I mentioned it earlier, the Paramount Theater in Seattle. So from March of 1989, Neil Young and Rockin' in the, excuse me, Rockin' in the Free World. (laughs) 